0: Say. it's been a long way
1: you hello everybody i'm aaron good and this is the american exception podcast in this episode i'm joined by two guests katherine lou is the author of virtue hoarders the case against the professional managerial class published by the university of minnesota press in 2021 she works on critical theory of the old-fashioned kind and is engaged in a long-term critique of PMC-driven liberal politics. Catherine and I are also joined by Daniel Kovalik, an American human rights lawyer, labor rights lawyer, and peace activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, the Huffington Post, and Telesaur. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Kovalik's books include Plot to Scapegoat Russia, The Plot to Attack Iran, the plot to control the world, how the US spent billions to change the outcome of elections around the world, no more war, how the West violates international law by using humanitarian intervention to advance economic and strategic interests, the plot to overthrow Venezuela, and most relevant for today's conversation, cancel this book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. This was a really fun conversation. I've talked to Dan a couple times in the past uh, but I'd never met Catherine. I've read her her work and I've heard her interviewed and I've seen her on Twitter. Uh, the three of us got along very well to the point that I just needed to start recording or it would have turned into Zoom happy hour or something. Having said all this, let's get to the discussion. Catherine Liu and Dan Kovalik, it's great to have you here today.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: So, Catherine Liu, you are the author of "Virtue Hoarders: The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class." And uh, what is the PMC? And I mean, I, I would, I would like to have some some virtue. So, why why are they hoarding it all?
2: Well, you should then make sure that you recycle and reuse and compost and go and buy $150 vintage clothes in Dumbo rather than buying like H&M, which is what you could probably just afford, and use only your virtue for consumption habits and policing other people's speech. How about that? You'll be there. You'll almost be there. The PMC is a class of professionals with college credentials usually associated with a professional organization. They um, were founded, and these professional organizations were founded during the progressive era in the United States, but um, the progression of the PMC from sort of liberal progressive to what I would say is neoliberal authoritarian has really taken place after the counterculture um, settled down in the 70s. And as John and Barbara Enreich pointed out, The PMC now completely monopolizes left progressive politics with its own versions of endless culture wars. It's also deeply embedded in Cold War um, formations because the um, Rand Corporation, Brookings, all of those um, sort of think tanks that arose to help us fight communism are very deeply related to empowerment of the PMC in in the United States in the post-war period. Right now, they're like the managers of American capitalism and its empire. They are not the capitalists because they don't actually own enough capital to live on the interest. So they have to go to work and they work for Morgan Stanley or they work in government or they work for like law firms. And it's very within the PMC itself. There's an increasing stratification as well. So the top of the PMC is, you know, making three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars and the bottom of it are aspirational People like graduate students, and also nurses, young residents, doctors who are who have five hundred thousand dollars of debt. The class is very destabilized and fractured right now, but its elites really control content production, American policy, and um, and uh, the professions.
1: Right, I think that's a good that's a good um, definition to start us off with and um one of their particular fetishes that we've we've seen here in recent years and it's come to have a name is the cancel the cancellation the cancel culture um dan you wrote cancel this book the progressive case against cancel culture so I mean, this seems to have arisen, like I said, out of uh, the, out, out of certain liberal slash PMC predilections. Uh, how can you uh, can you explain what cancel culture is to you, and what motivated you to write a book about it?
3: Yeah, well, why don't I start with why I motivated it? Because, or wh- what motivated me to do it? Because I think I think it illustrates what cancel culture is. Uh, it was not a book I intended to write. If if you, I, it's my sixth book. My other five, my first five, are all about U.S. foreign policy. They're all anti-imperialist. That's what I write about. That's that's my life. Um, in Pittsburgh, we have a Peace and Justice Center, one of the oldest of its kind in America, called the Thomas Merton Center. It's been around over fifty years. It was co-founded by a woman, a good friend of mine named Molly Rush. Very interesting person. You know, one day she had a family, a husband. Bunch of kids. If you meet her, she looks like a nun, and she looked even more like a nun back then over 50 years ago. One day she decided without telling her family to go and do a plowshares action with the Berrigan brothers, and uh, they damaged uh, a missile uh, a warhead uh, on a defense. Uh, Department base, and she was arrested. She faced uh, many, many years in prison. She got lucky. She only got 11 weeks that she was uh, jailed. But she became quite famous, and she helped co-found the Thomas Merton Center. She's been a peace activist her whole life. She's now, I believe, around 85 years old. And she's also done work in addition to the piece work, she's done work. She's been on picket lines with African American construction workers to help, you know, who were protesting to get in the construction union to get construction jobs because they had been banned. She's done it all. Great person, sweet person. Well, in I believe it was May of 2020, at the height of the BLM protest in the United States, she reposted on Facebook. She literally pressed. You know, share a meme that came across her platform that said, had a picture of Martin Luther King. It said, never, never looted, never rioted, changed the world. Okay. She was immediately t- attacked on Facebook as being a racist, and this is racist. And, you know, given the attack, she very quickly took it down and she very quickly apologized. But this was not enough. People continued to attack her. Um, And ultimately, the Thomas Merton Center that she helped co-found put out a public letter that they put on Facebook but also mailed to all the members saying that given what had happened, given what Molly had done, that she had put up a racist meme. They didn't say what it was, by the way. They could no longer associate with Molly Rush, and they took her name even down off the website, right? This is kind of – Spray painting Trotsky out of history. She, you know, they took her down as the name, name co-founder. And can you imagine? This woman's eighty-five years old. Um, this was devastating. I mean, literally, she was sobbing for weeks. And I just again, I just, I literally just called my publisher and I said we got to write something about this because of course this was also the height of people getting canceled for doing all sorts of things like this, for the slip of a lip or for a, you know, uh, some statement on Twitter or something that was well intentioned but poorly received. People lost their jobs, people lost their careers, and I I just and and the, and i do connect it to cuz we you know before we started uh recording this we were talking about how this is being used to advance you know imperial aims and and and, and in this instance it was fascinating because it, this was not just directed towards Molly, It really was directed towards the old guard of the Thomas Merton Center that frankly was keeping the peace part of the Thomas Merton Center alive. The younger folks who had taken over didn't care about peace so much. anymore. didn't care about having peace rallies, didn't care about opposing wars. All they cared about was doing diversity training seriously, and that's pretty much all they, they do now. They
2: don't. They didn't care about the class struggle either. I'm imagining. So no, it's not like they were like struggling for economic redistribution. They were struggling for spectacular and image image making um, events. where yes. they, they were anti racist, right? Right, and they hold
3: these. Uh, what do they call them? these yeah, sessions? These uh, there's a, a name for it. I think it comes out of the you know cultural revolution, but so these str- struggle, struggle sessions. They have these struggle sessions where they yeah, self yeah. they criticize each other. They self criticize.
2: No way! No way! You're joking. I thought it was a joke. No, Wait. I'm you not.
3: This is happening everywhere. I hear this in leftist groups. In fact, here's the thing. To the extent they do any protesting over social issues, the meetings don't start about that until they have their struggle session portion. And this is true. This is true of all groups. There's this incredible video. You can find it on YouTube of a DSA conference. Oh, I You've seen it. They get no work done. It's all <laughs> – Someone jumping up, you know, you know, I have sensory problems. This is too loud. And then some guy saying, I can't hear it. And some people saying, don't use that pronoun. And so there's
2: no, 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 it's it's so insane. And, um, I was just uh, talking about this, someone else that, and the politics has become for these people, um, I would say like PMC aspirational activists and pseudo progressives, like, um, self-confession and self-management so once they do the self-management of extirpating all traces of bias from themselves then they like project it out and they start the salem witch hunt Here's why i feel like this is our puritanism like our american like crypto protestantism mm-hmm. our like rage against heresy is just in it's like in our molecular structure Right. And I've been trying to fight this my whole life in on the left. And uh, there were times when I just turned away from politics because I couldn't take it anymore. But now I feel like um, it's just, it truly has jumped the shark. I mean, one thing that happened that was similar, Dan, to what I, I, I haven't read your book and I'm really um, eager to read it is um, I posted on Twitter in March of 2021 an anecdote that a friend had told me about um, an organizer who brought a bunch of Filipino or you know, um East Asian, Filipino um, workers, hotel cleaners to a DSA meeting because she was organizing them. And she's and my friend said, you know, when they started doing the pronouns, ritual like, hi, I'm do to do, and my pronouns are they them. Um these women just quietly left. This is all I did. I reported on this. Doug Henwood came after me. He unleashed his means on me. People DM me and told me I should kill myself. Like Jeez. take some, take some dandies, drink some white wine, and you maybe you should just kill yourself. And I was like, you go first. And I was still like fighting. I was in the fight mode, but I realized like it was taking away all my energy. Yeah, it does. I had other stuff to do, and it was really like shit. As anyone who's like ever been bullied or beaten up like I was as a kid, like it just shakes you up because the first thing you think is, if you've been the victim of this, I deserve this. Like, what did I do to deserve this? And then I just fought back like in a month later, you know, most East Asian languages don't have pronouns. They don't have markers. Mm-hmm. It's ta-tama. Interesting. And so my thought, and they were like, have you ever been misgendered? You're such a transphobe. It was like, I was fucking misgendered every day of my life by my own parents because they did not know how to manage pronouns. My brother was called she, her, I was called he, him. This is like, Chinese people learning English can't get their fucking pronouns straight. And if you've been cleaning hotel rooms for 10 hours and someone brings you to a meeting, the last thing you want to do is be like, oh no, I'm going to speak wrong. Right. I'm going to, I have to do an English lesson. No. Your purpose there, and the reason why this woman brought her, them there was that hoping to bring more union working class women to a DSA meeting and not all these like, you know, hipsters with like Taliban beards sitting around drinking single malt. I don't, I'm just making fun of them, but you know, wherever is, I, it just it, it, it made me more angry. So I wasn't like, I, I think it's much more devastating what happened in Pittsburgh because this was her life's work. Yes. You know What happened to me was intense, but um, and they didn't manage to cancel me. But uh, this situation, I don't want to say that they're equivalent, but there's that energy in the air and we have to fight back. The lot we have to fight back. And I'm so glad you wrote that book.
3: Thank you. Well, again, I was I had no choice. I mean, part of it was I mean, the only way to fight cancel culture is to not be silent. I mean, and I wasn't immediately on Facebook. I, I stepped up and defended her i mean you can't let a comrade and friend be brought down unjustly when you see it happening and and of course cancel culture depends on that silence it depends because the whole idea is to cow everyone
2: everyone's afraid right right.
3: everyone's (laughs) afraid and and look you know uh i'm about to be canceled in 40 minutes because i'm going to appear for an hour on tucker carlson's show um yeah, I saw and
1: that. That's that's wild. And people, uh,
3: yeah, and I and I I knew I was going to get in trouble, and I almost serious. like it's going to be seen by three million people, right? That's why I did it. Um,
2: absolutely, absolutely. But,
3: and, but I wasn't going to promote it on Facebook because I knew my friends would attack me, and sure enough, I did do it. People were, I mean, you know, you're meeting with a fascist, and did and, and one guy was like a good friend of mine, and I went to Iran with him. Nice guys, leftist, and he's like, you know. Great, you're getting the word out, but you know, what made you decide to sit down with that fascist? And I wanted to say I didn't say it, but like, well, you know, in deciding to get the word out about my book, you know, it was am I gonna host Saturday Night Live? Am I gonna go on the today show? Good morning. No, I, no one's having me on their shows. He's the one guy. He's
2: the one Look guy. Russia's not going to have you on their shows. No. Yeah,
3: Rachel Maddow's not going to have me on. NPR is never going to have me on. So w- the one guy who's got 3.21 million viewers says, "Come on and talk to me for an hour about Ukraine and Russia." I'm going to do it. And by the way, he was very—he was a nice guy. He was gracious. Um, you know, and I mentioned, and I even mentioned in my the the post that I initially did when when people attacked me, I said. You know, um, Noam Chomsky would always say the only guy who gave him primetime airing was William F. Buckley Jr. on Mm -hmm. on Crossfire, an arch conservative. But he wasn't afraid to have Chomsky on to talk to Mm -hmm. him, you know. Mm -hmm. And my lord, again, okay, so there's one guy in network TV that will have you on. Oh, but I'm not supposed to do it. So let's just talk to each other. Yeah. You know, and not accomplish anything. You know, it's incredible.
1: Yeah, it, it's my take on those sort of things is that in our we all participate in this economy and everything else. We do business with Wells Fargo and, you know, BlackRock owns at BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard manage everything. This is sort of matrix nightmare. The oil companies and they're intertwined with the defense industry and so on and so forth, like committing, you know, atrocities on like such a level that we're all kind of implicated in. We cannot but be that way with the financial system and the economy we have to participate in. And so to the degree that we're all implicated in these things, this idea of like you're going to retain your purity by like just avoiding these outlets, you know, on moral principles. I mean, to a degree, if they're like, you know, extremely horrendous, like American free press or some like Nazi thing, it's one thing. Right. But like, I mean, unfortunately, the Tucker Carlson that has him is a mainstream figure in the in the in this in this landscape so what are you going to do i mean this this podcast itself in my own work it focuses on the lawlessness and the political economic elite forces you know that drive all these things the the name um, american exception is a reference to carl schmidt his famous dictum that sovereign is he who decides the exception the reason that i wanted to have you guys come on and talk about this stuff is that at the at, since the end of world war ii the u.s becomes more overtly imperialist what is the role of this like the, the PMC and this identity politics, you know, tempest in the teapot perpetually all the time. I mean, what what is their role in maintaining the empire and the political economy needed to run the empire? Like, how do they how do they impact politics and society, all of these dynamics?
2: So one of the things that I think that um, American liberal democracy is that sort of beacon on the hill um, since World War II, the end of World War II, the great, we are the great anti-fascists, that um, image of America as a place of social mobility and transparency and all of those other things that accompany our vibrant, dynamic capitalist economy, all of that has gone to shit. You know, we're not democratic. We are not an equal society. We are less socially mobile than almost every other industrialized country in the world. We have a healthcare system that stinks. We have um, corn, high-fructose corn syrup being offloaded by big ag straight into the bodies of the working class. And with this decline in our image, we still have, though, um, one of our biggest exports is prestige and the meritocracy. Our universities and our research centers are extremely desirable. And all of this identity politics, this transgression, the gender um, criticism, gender theory, all comes about out of our universities. And this mutation of liberalism, which has to do with um, extirpation of racism and bias in, the, in a complete political economic vacuum, um, tolerance... Diversity, equity, inclusion, all of the all of this this language has been a desperate attempt by the Americans to re-legitimize its liberal ideology, which has which has no legs to stand on anymore, right? We incarcerate more people in the world so we can go crazy about the Uyghurs. Even my husband is like this like, I'm not watching the Beijing Olympics. I'm like, why aren't you boycotting America? We incarcerate a greater proportion of our um population than anyone else it's like you've been reading the fucking new york times
1: in absolute numbers too not just relative like actually in absolute numbers right,
2: absolute, right so um one thing that i think that our client states our post-war client states are so are trying to show up their own um democratic crises by adopting our liberal ideology which i would call like the neoliberal gender ideology right let me just tell you the story my husband had this like um um research position at um a german university and we go there and he i, I visit him and their bathrooms are gender neutral bathrooms with unicorns shitting rainbows i'm like oh okay so they're these magical people who shit rainbows and i was like this is really awful um they got this from america god you know well, how um sad right so um he goes back a year later and they're male female bathrooms again. the women protested about this they're actually you know they the people who actually work in the place didn't want to adopt the um the labeling that some like um manager decided was really cool um Deep more, even more deeply than that. Like, French is a Latin language. German is German has gender too. Spanish is a Latin language. How can you eliminate gender from that language? This is one of the reasons why people, especially like Spanish people, people, don't like Latin X because X is not a letter that is functional in Latin language. No, no, it's the
3: most romantic, so, sing song language. You put an X on it in the end and you can't even say the word.
2: Yeah. But people who use this within in France, people who do this in Germany, they are professional managerial class people who want to belong to American academia, who want approval from USAID or Fulbright, or who knows, the CIA. Like gender ideology is doing the work of the CIA at this point, because it is completely um, putting out there, like, do you accept this and do you not? And who does not accept this? Iran, China, and Russia right now. And probably North Korea. So the great axes of evil. All of our client states who like are rolling over and asking to be, you know, sodomized by us, they are like, Yes, let's go. Oh, I love this, let's go. Their people don't like this, but it's like cultivating that leadership cadre, which is what the US has done since the Cold War, cultivating a leadership cadre who has been educated at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Hopkins, whatever. And they go back to their countries and they have this like new way of being and they present themselves as a vanguard. So the people who actually resist this then appear as like People full of phobia and bias and racism, so we are exporting the kinds of horrible, like um, repression of class difference, repression of economic exploitation, and the um, and we're exporting conformity with regard to NATO, EU, and the U.S. domination of the globe with this form of. Um, being in the world now, because it is like a way of being in the world. And if you accept this way of being in the world, you think my personal problem is something that I have to confess to other people, any forms of bias that I have, I have to confess to, um, eliminate, and then police in other, in other people. You know, they have, like the French elite, like French neoliberals who want to be like Americans, they've made up pronouns in French, They Zeo, Z-E is like he, her, like that. This gender fluidity comes from small liberal arts colleges, private um, schools in New York, L.A., Chicago, and among the most that cost 50 to $65,000 a year for high school. This is where this stuff is coming from. And everyone is like eager to adopt it in the craven classes of the PMC in our client states. And I'm telling you, like, it it will be justification for different kinds of US foreign policy, like um, Dan was mentioning before, like, Russian homophobia, we must go and ex- rescue the homosexuals in Russia, we must go rescue the homosexuals and trans people in China. And you know what, when the US is coming in to rescue people in your country, you are fucked a 100 right,
3: ways. Right, you're, you're going to die. If I can just, your, your economy
2: is going. Yeah. So your economy is going to die. Your your um your elites are going to be corrupted. Your you know like um, um even in the African countries, the African elites are adopting this language. You know, okay, I'm. I'm no, go.
3: If I can build on it, because I mean, I, I you and I totally agree on on what's happening here. That okay after World War Two. The U.S. of course is the preeminent nation in the world. It's a, you know it, it, it controls fifty percent of the world's resources after World War II, and it's easy to understand how and why because it was the only major power that was not invaded. It, it fought a war. It sent some troops overseas, but it, 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 it its economy was never. Shut down. It didn't have infrastructure destroyed. All of Europe was destroyed. Russia was destroyed. China was destroyed. Japan was destroyed. The only country standing, the only major country is the U.S. So it is the king, right? And uh, we know, uh, you know, from what people said at the time, is that the U.S. decided it wanted to stay in this preeminent position, which would be impossible without looting. And and repressing the entire globe, you can't keep 50 percent of the world's resources to yourself by being a nice guy. And so, again, like we always do, we draped ourselves in democracy and freedom. And that's what we're going to defend. That's what we're going to spread. Okay. But as the years go on, less and less people in the US and abroad see us as particularly democratic or particularly free for the re- some of the reasons you said, and certainly economically, we're not the power we used to be, be. And if anyone's paying attention, they know we have horrible homeless problems. We have the worst COVID numbers. Okay, we ha- have the most cases and the most deaths in the world. But right,
2: the highest mortality. Higher
3: rate. mortality rate, and I think numbers too. Uh, again, like the prison number, I think you know gross numbers. So look, it's a it's a failed state. OK, so the only thing to justify now intervention is that we're the wokest country. Right. And so, again, I listen to NPR and or, NPR, it's, or it, it's
1: or it's covert and we just say it's not happening like Kazakhstan. Well, that crazy that shit happens. There's some heads that get chopped off. We don't know anything about, about how that happened. But,
3: but if we're going to send troops over and they're all poor people, of course, uh, they're going to be sent over to defend Wokeness, and so again, NPR is a great study, and it is the reason I listen mm-hmm. to NPR as hard as it is to listen.
2: It is a great. It, it's like um, you know, entering this like maelstrom of like a morass of liberal ideology that doesn't even make any. No, it sense. makes. No, not, it's it's so a
3: bunch different. of it's word salads, but it's woke, woke, woke. Russia's bad. Woke, woke. China's bad woke woke we shouldn't have got out of afghanistan because we got to protect the women even though at the time we left afghanistan had the worst place in the world the last place for women's rights okay it's a joke we're not protecting anybody okay but this is how these wars are sold and look how do we how do we export this stuff it's all exported from hollywood our movies and look at our movies. Watch Black Panther, considered the wokest superhero film. Yes, yeah, the only white hero was a CIA agent, openly a CIA. I
2: thought, it was like, I thought it was like the Monroe Doctrine for Africa. Yeah.
3: Well, of course. And then look at there's this new movie out. I think it's called Five Thirty Five or something. It's about these like five women of all different ethnicities. It's a rainbow coalition of women who And they talk about the beginning. They're going to save the world. Who do they work for? The CIA. The opening scene of the trailer is them walking over the CIA seal. And then you had, of course, that woke recruitment video from the CIA.
1: Yeah, it was classic.
3: This is how we're – this is how empire and intervention is being justified now.
2: Well, I feel like an empire in decline is trying to – Right. This is, it's you know, if we were simply imperial and more powerful militarily and economically, and we had um, the strength that we had in 1945, right, in terms of both fantasy and real and material reality, there would be like clear repression, very ritualistic, like um, enactments of domination. The world is slipping out of American control. Yes. America is slipping out of its own control. We are a failed state in so many ways because we've allowed corporate capitalism to suck this world, suck our country dry. And so we are trying to export something that we want people to be still desiring. Like my father immigrated to the States in 64, 63, right? He's... He was like his family, his, you know, everything was ravaged by the Chinese Civil War and then the occupation in Japan. Like there's stuff that he's seen that he'll never be able to talk about. Right. But so he comes to America and it does represent like he has all this admiration for the United States, for rule of law, for the peace that you described, that America was basically untrammeled. that ideology of U.S. triumphalism after World War II still functioned. It functioned well. It's not functioning well now. So we have to come up with these um, um, pseudo-political, what, what, pseudo-politically enlightened um, morality plays that we're exporting to other people that are so pernicious. And so, just, can I just tell you guys one other anecdote about this area in Germany where my husband was? Um, this this area is basically salt flats between East and West Germany, right? Lüneburg. We went out there and to the countryside. It is devastated because the former East has nothing but agriculture. Everyone is leaving. There's no um, economy but... Um, like making salt, which doesn't make a lot of money, and tourism, right? And then this, like, um, nostalgia for the Prussian state, right? Some for communism. I mean, most people right. want communism deep, back. Yeah. Deep nostalgia yeah. for communism, but there's basically, like, no people anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, it's completely empty. All the young people left. In the actual town itself, there are all these Black Lives Matter banners, I am not kidding you. There are like maybe 10 black people, black Germans in this whole area. Like, but somehow the leadership of this department, whatever the state, the city decided like they needed to have these black lives matter. Um, banners. What is the meaning of that? I mean, I think that this is just Germany displaying the fact that it wants to be the 51st state that it's a client state of the U S and, um, it's just pathetic. I, I just thought, like, this is so sad. You, This whole area ha- economically is um, really, really devastated. And you have Black Lives Matter in this little, like, jewel-like medieval town that remains like a tourist attraction. So uh, when you have people in Germany who reject this ideology, then we immediately call them racist. We call them fascist. We, We... We come up with this language that was operational in 1946 when we did triumph over the fascists. We thought we did. It was actually the Soviet Union who sacrificed 20 million people to do so. But that was our victory. So um, that's why people love to use that term now. And they actually do not know what it means. And we're still fighting that term. the, The other thing that we've destroyed, and this was something I believed in, which I don't believe in anymore... We've destroyed education. We've destroyed historical knowledge. We have a failed state because the majority of people who have the right to vote, which everyone should be exercising, had no idea of what history is. They don't know what communism is. They don't know what fascism is. They are reacting like emotionally to certain things, affectually, whatever. And you know what? People in my profession, they don't want to even teach history. Because they're they're teaching this kind of like anti bias thing, you know they want to conform to the narrative of the sixteen nineteen project. They don't actually want to teach the history of the United States, which is a history of class struggle, as far as I'm concerned. So um, nobody gives a shit. Or if you, even if you want to teach history with like in the high liberal way, at least teach it about the Enlightenment. I mean that was a fucking revolution. It was a bourgeois revolution. We got science. We got democracy. We had, you know, um, we had the notion of universal suffrage originating at that time. But you know what? If you say that now, you're Eurocentric. You're racist. I'll aggress and kill
0: the
1: I think that the, this change over time, and the fact that this does coincide with the decline of the U.S. and the, the clear decline, is, and the, the ahistorical you know, um, the a historical nature of, of the knowledge that sort of pervades this all of these discussions, in the U.S. after World War II and in the fifties, you had like the kitchen debates, right, with like Khrushchev and Nixon, Nixon and they're like, check out our kitchens we got a, a, we got a microwave and a, you know, if they had microwaves we got an oven, we got all this other
0: stuff. Right.
1: right. They were proud of this. And then the, of its middle class and the prosperity. And then in the sixties, you have this, Catherine, you center 1968 as being a really pivotal year. And I do too, though, though, for maybe slightly different reasons, but I, I see that as when the establishment, I mean, and it, it, it corresponds to the, the closing of the glo- of the gold window and the end of Bretton Woods, and then the seventies, the, the subsequent years. They work out this system where the normal rules about like taxation and spending and, and, and uh, investing and so on are pretty much made up by these powerful you know bankers and, and oilmen and so on who control these things in, in manipulative ways, and it, it takes politics out of the realm of of of, the, of what we think of as the political system. So what, what do you think uh, happened to this class of uh, the PMC in 1968? And how do you think that this like sort of breaking point between like the sort of new deal and the remnants of the new deal and the rise of the counterculture, and then everything kind of goes to shit after, after 1968 in some ways, if I can oversimplify there.
2: Uh, no, I mean, that. if you don't mind, uh, um, I'll just go into what I think is happening um, within the PMC and uh we see all these images of civil unrest that are the um, sort of cartoon images of the 60s, right? Well, there were a lot of, the majority of people were not actually rebelling against, um, were not uh, um, demonstrating at Columbia or Berkeley, but they were questioning like the um, the narrative of American greatness, et cetera. But you have this um, real crisis that happens a few years after 68, which is inflation, stagflation, the diminishing returns on capital itself, because as Dan pointed out, we were dominating the world economy. But what the U.S. had done was, through the Marshall Plan, um, invested in the industrialization of Japan, invested deeply industrialization of, um, of um, Europe as well in order to rebuild so they wouldn't become Nazis. But the investment of the industrialization of Japan and Taiwan and South Korea as bulwarks against communism allowed for cheaper labor and different forms of industrial management to take place. And at that point, Japan and eventually East Asia would represent enormous competition for industrial manufacture. So that breaks down U.S. domination of the world manufacturing um, um, system and um I would say, like, 72 is actually the critical year when globalization really takes form by um, the exportation of industrial jobs to cheaper labor markets in East Asia. And uh, the, in order to save capitalism, the PMC elites who are in these schools where a lot of protests are going on, they help black box financial policy corporate and financial policy. So as you said, Aaron, it no longer becomes a question of public debate. Things are just, you know, things are just being exported. Capital is being exported out of the country. And um, I think in 72 and all these political analyses, the weight of things that America is producing declines, but the um, actual economic activity of like um, non- Non material goods like um, credentials, like um, Hollywood films, that explodes. So, content creation, culture industry stuff begins to rise, and the weight of things that we actually produce, like cars, wrenches, um, the microphone that I'm using right now, that all declines. And it's been on a decline. Like, we couldn't, this is why we're having logistics problems, because it was so much cheaper to make um, toothbrushes in China that. Nobody was making a toothbrush in the United States. So once we had shipping problems, there weren't toothbrushes in the supermarket. You know, it was just so this kind of thing that happened um, was about American facilitated globalization, overseen by a um, Jet Set PMC who thought of this as a new form of globalization. Cold War cosmopolitanism. And once again, the people who are trapped in their places, who can't move, who are, have kinship networks, who live in working class towns like Pittsburgh, they're like the left behind. They're just like the duds of this new globalized economy. Like you can't move for your job, you're dud. Or you can't retrain yourself, you're dud. And this PMC elite that comes out of this period is able to um, adapt so they think two different cultures, different languages. You know, this is part of the new um, multiculturalism that they promote. It's very superficial, but um, it's American facilitated globalization that takes place because the rate of profit for American capitalism is begins to decline at exactly the period we're talking about, between sixty eight and seventy two. There are material reasons for why the rust belt and every small town American city looks the way it does. And nobody wants to talk about that. Everybody, you know, who's like supposedly an activist just wants to talk about, you know, Kendy or, you know, um, eliminating the racism within. It's just I, I'm very, very like angry, but also like really, really shaken and maybe pessimistic right now about what the way forward, and maybe it's just like well, this is what people feel when they live through the decline and collapse of an empire. I don't
3: know. Can I add a few things? I mean, the other, the intellectual part that began at the same time, late '60s, early '70s, is postmodernism, yeah. uh, which is a reaction to Marxism, right? And and it undermines Marxism greatly, in fact.
2: I make this point in so many ways, Dan. How come we've never I know. met? We have because to. We have-
3: I know we have to absolutely sit down and have have a meal and. Um, I live in Pittsburgh, by the way. Um, and this TIA openly pushes postmodernism, right? It, it it sponsors the Paris Review. We know this. We know that it was funding a lot of these groups and periodicals to push this because they knew that this was a great thing to weaken the left because it weakened class analysis. Again, this is when people now start to put identity. Racial, gender identity over class issues,
2: but then, well, I, I would just make a, I would just make slight amendment here. The CIA's activities with the Congress for Cultural Freedom was about promoting high modernism, abstract expressionism. By the early seventies, like even the the theorists are saying, oh no, we don't like high modernism. We like pop culture, pop like bring high low have to be collapsed and the CIA like realizes that if people find out that they're funding culture um, it's going to be a problem like they funded moma you know they sort of withdrew and the whole thing became like had an autonomous it, the anti-social anti-Marxism like just ha- it had it grew with a life of its own like the CIA didn't even need to intervene in that
1: the foundations and the CIA are both the symptoms of the same thing. So even if it's the foundations doing it, and we know the, the Ford Foundation used to be a CIA conduit, but if it's foundations and other groups that are like connected to capital, then it's a kind of a distinction without a difference, whether or not it's really the CIA.
3: Well, and we know the CIA has and continues to to have a huge influence in Hollywood. We know this, right? So for I'll give you a couple examples of this. We know if you, if you do any movie that has, if you need a jet for it, a fighter jet, or you need To be on a base, the Defense Department has say over the script, and we know that they've changed scripts. For example, in Meet the Parents, right, uh, uh, Ben Stiller goes into Robert De De Niro's lair, right? He finds out he's with the CIA. In the original script, he finds a CIA torture manual on the table. CIA said, oh, no, 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 you're not going to do that. So they changed the script because the CIA wanted them to, where he sees De Niro with a picture of some guy who looks like he's in Afghanistan. And and that's how he figures out he's with the CIA. We're not going to talk about CIA torture. There's numerous examples of this in film, right? And again, there's whole films that are promoted by the CIA to push pro-CIA sentiment. Um, But I agree with you. It's not that this movement, it did have an organic basis. There were some legitimate reasons it grew out of critiques of, you know, class reductionism and, you know, people being mistreated uh, by white, you know, uh, leaders. That's all real. But certainly the CIA seized on this as a way to promote the destruction of the left and – the next period we have to talk about, which I will briefly, is 1989
2: to 1991, is the next. Oh, I just want to yeah. add one thing to that. Like one way of destroying in an organic material left struggle over its own politics is to foist CIA-sponsored feminism onto, onto the political scene. And so Gloria Steinem's complicity with CIA, more and more, I'm like, yeah. Feminism now, the way it is, bourgeois feminism, it's a CIA COINTELPRO act, you know. And Steinem was part of the CIA. Yes, she admits she
3: like, this.
0: And,
2: yeah, absolutely. And, she this, and this is the thing that, you know, you can now smear, you could smear any left organization as being just sexist in the 70s. Then it was like, okay, well, you guys can't do anything now until you have your struggle sessions and, uh, extirpate any misogyny from within your bodies and then we can move on nothing happened you didn't move on because the left was just destroyed and there is no celebration of left female like you know actual leftists like it wasn't like oh let's take up Emma Goldman or Rosa Luxemburg no it was like let's take up Gloria Steinem and then Hillary Clinton like the more I am so deeply deeply disturbed by The um, evolution of feminism that I think really someone should write a book about how it's actually American feminism has just been completely captured is PMC CIA captured um, anti-Marxism. This is one of the reasons why we can't have um, um, a a more just society right now. They
1: were the champions of some of these movements when John Kennedy wanted to pass the nuclear test ban treaty. Public opinion was really against him, like 90 percent, something like that. And it was women's groups who mobilized to really shift public opinion. They did that stuff in uh, ab- the abolitionist struggle as well. It is, it, but this liberation, as it's packaged by these CIA feminists like Gloria Steinem, liberation really just means exploitation by capital and, and being well, yeah. integrated into the ability- this system. And then what do they? What does that do to the social capital of the United States? It diminishes it enormously. I'm not saying you should ever return to like the the, the kitchen, but like. The fact that it that coincided with the with a time period where it became essential to work a job that's that's messed up.
2: Think, think about like how feminism could have progressed. Like we could have had universal um, daycare, childcare, twenty four hour childcare is one of the most critical mm-hmm. things for women, especially young young parents, working class parents. Like the stress of actually having to pay for children's um, childcare, go to work. And then, you know, fight economically um, for survival and then fight with your spouse. They found that in France, when they had 24 hour childcare sessions that were um, places where you could just drop your kid off in nursery without an appointment, they were high quality, and you could go out at night, have some leisure time, it reduced the um, domestic violence, it reduced rates of. Divorce within these working class communities, incredibly. If you really want to fight against domestic violence or violence against women, free universal 24-hour child care and universal health care would be the most amazing things and would be on your lips like every single minute of the day. So many women were Trapped in these single, you know, earner households with only health care coming out of their husbands. Imagine if they could have just said, You know what? I'm leaving you. You you can't do that to me. You can't treat me that way. I have my national health care card and I don't care. That they don't care about these feminists. Don't care about this. They, they can't even focus on this. Bullshit. You know, plant they only want like PMC fundraising opportunities like Planned Parenthood. I just am like, I, I. I am darker and darker and darker about um, the priorities of bourgeois feminism. And they really reveal themselves as not giving a shit about women actually, and about um, women's issues. They don't, give a, they don't give a shit. Because, you know, the, the, the reason why women stayed in these abusive relationships is economic. Yeah, yeah
1: it's, it would it would make such a difference to, to provide material security for people. But that Again, I, I actually think that the material insecurity is something that as a result of the 60s and then in, in 1968, an observer at the Bohemian Grove, you know, the place where all those creepy right wing establishment people hang out. He wrote about it. and He said, man, the atmosphere was just terror in 1968 of the establishment. And if you read like the Trilateral Commission things in the 70s, they wrote about how there's a crisis of democracy and governability and that it's coming from the middle class. And it's the strangest thing because it's a period of security. And, you know, this is not really good. And you notice that after that, systematically, they go about and make everyone – really precarious even the pmc is precarious the working class even more so.
2: frightened for their life and lives. nobody
1: and i i think that it's not a, because when you understand the the way the u.s dollar works in the world and the way we can spend de- deficits without much problem i don't think these are born out of like scarcity i think that they actually manage the uh precarity of the population for political reasons to maintain their own hegemony because we are like a we're like uh, I think it's Michael Parenti who used to say, yeah, the leaders want more Indonesias, less Denmark's, right? And in, in yeah. Indonesia, what they went through in the way that they, they, they mass murdered, you know, the entire all the Marxists and they were kept dirt poor. Their country was exploited by like Freeport and all these oil companies and so on. But there's no uprising because you're just trying to survive. Like there's a, a miniature version of that seems to have happened with America and the PMC. They, they both perpetuate it, but they experience it, too, with their own precarity.
2: Well, so in the Bohemian growth thing, like just to finish up what you were saying, but the fear of the ruling class of this discontentment actually had to do with the fact that because the rate of capital was falling, wages were rising and people had higher expectations. And therefore you have more discontent. And that is a good thing for mass politics. But there was like, if you want to think conspiratorially, like not a QAnon way, but, you know, just normal critical thinking um, there was a concerted effort then to destroy the economic security of the majority of Americans. So you'd be scared for your fucking life, scared about your, um, your tomorrow, your, the food you can put on the table, the doctor's bill, and you have a much more docile disciplined workforce by 1985 because of blue collar downsizing and then white collar downsizing.
3: And then, again, I want to go back to the, – the next shoe to drop is between 1989 and 1980, 1991, and that's the collapse of the East Bloc and the Soviet Union. And right. what does this do? A couple things. First of all, it sends the left into a moral panic or a panic because whatever you thought of the Soviet Union, it was the North Star. right? Everything the left – did. It did in connection to the Soviet Union. Even if you were Trotskyist, you did it because you didn't like the communists or the whatever. Once the Soviet Union goes down, the left has no – its compass is just explodes. Right, it's the, so end, that's, it's the end of history. Yeah, and I remember this happening. I cry every night uh, about the collapse of the Soviet Union, but that's another story. Um, but also something else happens. The US, which had been – claiming to fight a war on communism for the past 50 years now has to come up for another reason for intervening in these countries right and so it comes yeah. up with humanitarian interventionism which human rights right which human rights and again women's rights etc all good things but essentially they have to now base their intervention based on these more you know uh, liberal small l liberal issues And of course, you have people like Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power and Susan Rice become the advocates for this new reason for intervention. Of course, this then becomes fully realized in 2008 with the election of Barack Obama, who, by the way, in a memo, the CIA said they thought he would be the best president to represent the empire because people would. Trust whatever he was doing abroad, even if it was mass murder or destroying a country like Libya, people would accept it. Liberals would accept it. And that did happen. In fact, you had Democracy Now!, which claims to be progressive, supporting the Libya intervention, right? Which destroyed a nation. There's now slaves being sold in public markets in Libya because of that invasion. But you had people like Democracy Now! supporting it, right? Um, The war in Yemen, which is barely spoken of, right? Everyone's talking about Russia may or may not invade Ukraine. We talk about this every day. Right now, there's a real war being waged against Yemen that Obama started in 2015. It's the worst humanitarian crisis on Earth. Millions of people may die because of this. This is according to the UN. Even Samantha Power would later admit, yeah, 21 million people may die. Guess what? She ran interference at the Security Council to make sure – that that no one investigated the war crimes in Yemen. That's a true story. Okay, so what happens with Obama? Of course, he's elected. The Nobel Committee awards him the Nobel Prize in his first year. Even after, by the way, his first weekend in office, he does a drone attack and kills a number of civilians. I joked with some friends at the time. They. Didn't appreciate it. I have no friends at, at this point. Um, I said, yeah, he killed more people than Charlie Manson his first week in an office. And one of the, one of the lawyers who was sitting there said, oh, well, that's harsh. It's harsh that I said it or it's harsh that he did it. Right, right, and he right, droned right. more people, bombed more people than any president in history, deported more people than any president in history, even Trump. And yet because – I'm sorry. Largely because of his of his identity,
2: it was OK. And we don't well question he made it, he made America look like a beacon of liberalism again yeah. for a moment. No, and that was yeah. lipstick on the pig. You know, he was lipstick on the pig. Yes. He really was. I mean, you people were admiring us for um electing an African the first African American president. So and um Europeans were like, Oh, we're so racist, liberal European elites who are like, you know. Professor types, which you know, I have a hard time having friends too in my own class. Um, they were like, "Oh my God, it's so amazing! Europeans are so racist. This would never happen." And I was just like, "You guys are just a bunch of d- stooges." I mean, this is, but what it was really effective in um, re cementing a fraying neoliberal consensus.
3: Yeah, and I'm not sure after the Obama presidency by the way i fell forward i mean look i was happy i voted for I, I voted for I, I cried too. when he was elected
1: no i'm gonna i'm gonna one-up you all i was on his campaign staff and i and i went to the inaugural ball so i i, I got the biggest dunce cap of all
3: yeah no and and, and of course because it was a good thing you know i think one commentator said i think it was actually surprisingly uh giuliani who said it made a America an honest country or whatever. It was important. But the point is it was used to justify the most horrible atrocities, and it continues to be, right? Because then even when he's gone, well, he started the war in Yemen, so I guess if Trump continues it and Biden continues it, we can't say much about it. You know, it it, it was critical in solidifying the liberals' commitment to empire. And yeah. And it remains. This remains. This commitment, and of course, Russia Gate, which followed, also solidified the liberal connection to the CIA and FBI. All, all of a sudden, they're the good guys because they're exposing Trump's <laughs> desire to have peace with Russia. This horrible thing. And anyway, I'll just say, I'll just finish by saying, you know, it. it it's just you know the U.S. is a country where appearances are everything, right? And I compare you know Obama to Trump in the following way: it's really they're both serial killers in terms of their foreign policy and domestic policy. Uh, but but Obama was Ted Bundy, uh, he was the he was the preppy killer, and uh, and and uh, Trump was John Wayne Gacy, right? The clown killer, uh, you know, and. Um,
1: and did, did, did Trump even catch any shit for his most brazenly gangsterish act, which is when he killed the guy that defeated ISIS, the Soleimani guy? Like, it's it's so absurd that you can just murder someone, tweet about it, and who did the guy defeat? He defeated ISIS. What can we infer about the fact that killing ISIS leaders would put you on America's shit list? You know, I mean, well, it's pretty wild.
2: Yeah, yeah, and also just killing foreign leaders—you know—we can act with impunity. I mean, if you think about it, at least in the '60s, people were outraged about what was happening in Vietnam. I mean, there's coverage of that 24/7 on the three networks. I mean, I was like little—I I came in '68 to the United States, but. I just remember like everyone watching the news and my family, even though they didn't really understand it. And that just happened. Soleimani's death was just like, oh yeah, another part of the course. We have become so numb and brutalized by American violence abroad and at home that we can't even react anymore. No. And that's what makes me really terrified. You know, for instance, Dan, we can cancel your friend with such fervor, but what? where's the outrage about our brutal assassination of foreign leaders with total impunity abroad. What has happened to the left? That This is is where we are now. Um, What has happened with all this information we have on the internets where we all know everything? It's all bullshit. We're just the most conformist, most supine people in the world right now. Or
3: again, everyone we don't like we call a fascist, but then meanwhile when the U.S. is literally supporting neo-Nazis in Ukraine, it's not even discussed.
1: Yeah, and it's let me, not
3: discussed.
1: We the, the as far as the projection stuff goes, I think this is a this is key. And I I've heard you mention this before, Catherine, or link to pieces that talk about this, but this is kind of a particular hobby horse of mine, which is state criminality, the fact that the US is this liberal democracy and there's the rule of law. But if you take just the things that we know about, it's the the US seems to operate in a state of exception and lawlessness. The, the relations with the the mob, you know, using the mob in different ways to try to assassinate foreign leaders, connections to drug running syndicates, torture programs, um, s- s- illegal arms deals, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, covert operations, things that violate the UN Charter, which is according to the supremacy clause supposed to be the supreme law of the land. You know, the U.S. Constitution t- mandates that. So it's like we are a gangster state, basically. Yeah, and yeah. part of the the PMC ethos yeah. is to Also, that I've noticed, it's probably not universal, but there's like this revulsion of the conspiracy theorist label. So things that have happened in the U.S. We talked about 1968. 1968 is when Thomas Merton dies in a strange way. Martin Luther King dies. Robert F. Kennedy dies. Right. And when you look into all these cases and John Kennedy is, of course, the most obvious one. But you see that like there's this the state that there's a darker force here that kind of polices these things you know, in a, in a way and then denies it. And the PMC mentality is like to really be revolted by conspiracy theories and to like, you know, call that, use that as name calling, unless it's like ru- an approved one, like Russiagate. And then it doesn't even matter if there's no facts behind it at all. It's like the conspiracy yeah. theory that they just accept as fact. And they call you a conspiracy they theorist if you that. don't believe they it.
2: Love, so love, love, love Russiagate. They, yeah. yeah. So, but, but the thing that I was thinking about was that most of our Um, to be critical of the illegality of U.S. state action, both at home and abroad, has no rewards. But to be a PMC apologist for that has many, 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 many rewards. You can work on K Street. You can work for Rand. You can go into government. You can get a grant. And this is like a huge grant. You can work for the Carnegie Endowment. This is what the PMC structure has done. This does sound like a conspiracy and probably is, but there've been state private capture of an entire professional class. And the price for entry is to actually give up on high liberal professional values. And if you can do that, you will be copiously rewarded in your career. If you're like a smart guy and you can do this, this is why, that the pms the capture of the professional managerial class which should be a neutral class which could be an enforcer class with regard to legality and um you know statecraft no they are pure apologists now and um if you look at all the foreign policy statements and the foreign policy um position papers there is basically no dissent with regard to american imperialism It's, it's various, like, it's just like the Cold War, like various um, projections and massaging of certain observations that they have on Hungary or Poland or, you know, Vietnam or whatever. But there is no systematic total picture. The only people who are trying to do that are Marxists, and they're not going to be in um, state-sponsored think tanks. So I, you know, the other thing that I think is really sad is that this, as a conspiracy goes, is that it behooves the powers that be to have a generally miseducated, misinformed, propagandized um, population. And the PMC is executing the mission very, very fucking well.
3: Yeah, and let me just say a couple things. You know that the CIA invented the term conspiracy theory, right? Is, is it yeah, they, they, they pop,
2: they, they've sort of
1: popularized it. it really, I I've, my dissertation is on this, so I'm going to okay, correct you so a little you know bit. A little it's really Carl, okay. it's sort of Charles Beard. It goes back right. to his conspiracy theory of the 14th Amendment. And then there were, and C. Wright Mills writes about the conspiracy theory of history as a as a ideal type to be juxtaposed with the drift theory of history or fate, You know, but that it's like really somewhere in the middle of, some conspiracy and then some structural factors and so on. But but what you're saying is a 1968-67 memo, and I'll, I'll let you continue there.
3: Yeah, that they promote it as a derogatory term to refer to people who specifically claim the CIA is going around and assassinating world leaders and having conspiracies to overthrow governments, which was real. So this was a way to try to uh, marginalized people, which uh, to, to this day, obviously, that is true, even though we know every day a conspiracy is merely two or more people planning to commit a crime of some sort. This so, happens every so, single
2: day. So, so you know, the one thing that I want to like put to mitigate this view is that when we make it sound like the CIA is so competent, right. it's not. Like that, that's my problem with conspiracy theories, even though I love them, is that you have this idea that there's like a puppet master, right? The raw power of the puppet master has to do with money. There are many ways of buying off the intelligentsia, and the CIA is really, really good at doing that. They're extremely incompetent, but if you lubricate their incompetence with rewards, like you know, like the Ford Foundation, like Rockefeller, like Carnegie, they're working with these foundations and they're rewarding, um, you know, smarty pants with grants so that people don't have independent views. They have views that are curated and massaged by the U.S. imperial um, adventure, and it's actually the raw power of money. And this is what the other thing about the PMC is that in the state of brutal man versus man, um, dog-eat-dog capitalism, this professional class is more and more craven because it feels economically insecure, and there are real um, incentives to conform.
0: Right.
2: So um, the CIA is really good at working with... Um, the money, money, basically, to buy off um, the intelligentsia. That's basically what's happened in the United States.
3: The other thing, again, this is just an observation and it's moving a bit away from the CIA, but the interesting thing with this cancel culture is that it elevates the word and the thought over the deed. And I'll give you an example of this. So in my class, I teach international human rights law at the University of Pittsburgh and uh, I in my genocide section, I teach v, the war in Vietnam. I claim the U.S. war in Vietnam was genocidal because it's what is genocide? It is the um, it is the plan to uh, destroy in whole or in part a national ethnic group, etc., by killing them, by relocating them, etc. And I say, well, what was Vietnam? First of all, we killed a huge percentage of their population, millions. We intentionally destroyed uh, – we wanted to destroy the agricultural sector of Vietnam, and we moved people. We moved people out of the agricultural areas into the cities, destroy their food, et cetera. And now the, the difficulty of proving genocide is you have to prove that this is being done to destroy this group as such because they're a member of that group. And I said, well, what's the evidence of this? Is this the same evidence we use in other cases? It's that we said and people military people were trained to kill and I'm sorry I have to use this word they had the mere gook rule okay that if you were an Asian in theater I don't if you were two years old or a hundred years old you were subject to being killed because you were a member of that ethnic national group that is genocide okay and I teach this and I and this is how I teach it well, I get called down to the dean's office. Did you use the word gook in your class? Well, yes, I was teaching genocide. And one way you prove genocide is that people use ethnically charged racist terms. So they cared more. And by the way, the person, the dean said, oh, I, by the way, I didn't know that they did that. I didn't know that this happened. You know? um, and they care more that I used that term than, than that we did it that we killed these people because they were vietnamese. Johnston wanted to turn vietnam into a parking lot. He said that that it would be in, that would be more than that would be holocaustal, right?
2: But I really think like we're in this like horrific um um moment in the decline of an empire where we are so morally, politically, spiritually bankrupt that this could happen. Where we would care more about the quotation of a racial slur than the attempted genocide of an entire people that you were trying to teach in your class. Like I, I just feel like that's that's really a sign of like how completely corrupt and How completely like deliquescent our political um, um, situation is.
1: Dan Kovalik, Catherine Lou, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Thank you. Hey, it was a pleasure. So,
2: so great. Really
3: nice to meet you, Aaron and Catherine. And yeah, I'm going to
2: get your book. I'm going to. Yeah, we're going to meet yeah. up. I'm going to go and travel America and come and
3: you visit you. You got a you. place to stay. Okay. Thank you both okay. very much.
2: Thank you. It's good to meet you too, Aaron.
1: I'm really happy to have been able to get Catherine and Dan here together. I know this is a little change of pace compared to our usual focus on the deep politics of empire and state criminality, but I think these political and cultural issues are very relevant and they've been shaped by the same forces that drive the U S empire. I urge you to check out virtue hoarders by Catherine Liu and cancel this book by Dan Kovalik. I have something I wanted to work into our discussion, but I didn't get the chance. It's a quote from The Power Elite by C. Wright Mills, written in 1956. It's largely about the elite, but it certainly applies to the PMC. So here it is. There is, in psychological fact, no such thing as a self-made man. No man makes himself, least of all the members of the American elite. In a world of corporate hierarchies, men are selected by those above them in the hierarchy in accordance with whatever criteria they use. In connection with the corporations of America, we have seen the current criteria. Men shape themselves to fit them and are thus made by the criteria, the social premiums that prevail. If there is no such thing as a self-made man, there is such a thing as a self-used man, and there are many such men among the American elite. Under such conditions of success, there is no virtue, in starting out poor and becoming rich. Only where the ways of becoming rich are such as to require virtue or to lead to virtue, does personal enrichment imply virtue. In a system of co-optation from above, whether you began rich or poor seems less relevant in revealing what kind of man you are when you have arrived than in revealing the principles of those in charge of selecting the ones who succeed. Okay, this is all very true for the PMC. The status that they have derives from their having internalized the criteria desired by those above them. This is pretty straightforward. Okay, back to C. Wright Mills. All this is sensed by enough people below the higher circles to lead to cynical views of the lack of connection between merit and mobility, between virtue and success. It is a sense of the immorality of accomplishment, and it is revealed in the prevalence of such views as... It's just another racket, and it's not what you know, but who you know. Considerable numbers of people now accept the immorality of accomplishment as a going fact. Well, this is one of the most devastating things to realize about our society at this late stage of the U.S. Empire. There's often a stark reverse correlation between status and virtue. Obviously, this is the case in the three realms that Mill's Power Elite focuses on, politics, corporate America, and the military, but it also holds true in the media. The propaganda function of the media is ironically best encapsulated in the Washington Post tagline, Democracy Dies in Darkness. It's ironic, of course, as I said. As a liberal institution, the media is supposed to be a watchdog for the public interest, but of course the corporate media typically runs interference for elite malfeasance, or it just outright misleads the public for the purposes of public relations, aka propaganda. This immorality of accomplishment, as Mills calls it, is sensed by working people who, to varying degrees, resent the PMC and the elite. The immorality of accomplishment is also sensed by the PMC. As Catherine Liu points out, they are often miserable and insecure, both because their status is precarious and because they cannot but sense the deep corruption of our society, as well as the fact that their moralistic individualism can in no way impact the structural forces responsible for the crises facing our civilization. This inner turmoil may be why some academics are both miserable and sort of insufferable. They have to suppress their awareness that these postmodern blind alleys are basically neoliberal scholasticism. They're not doing anything to illuminate or even inconvenience this regime. The first emperor of the Han dynasty, Liu Bang, a guy who shared Catherine's surname, he was a rustic fellow who rose from less rarefied circles to become emperor. To legitimize the dynasty, he adopted Confucianism as an official quasi-religious state doctrine. But he never let the court Confucians forget their subservience to the state. Sometimes when he would see one of those smug scholars walking around the palace, He would go up to him, snatch the fancy Confucian hat off his head, and piss in it. It's a little different for the PMC today. They're surrounded by more subtle reminders that they serve at the pleasure of the regime. So maybe we should set our sights higher. Instead of the PMC, maybe we should cancel the regime instead. That's just a thought. If you are new to this podcast, please consider subscribing I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode, Casey Moore for the artwork, and Mock Orange for providing our music. And thanks to everybody out there for supporting American Exception so we can keep bringing the light.
0: No surprise that we're unreal The work's been done, now see if you can